Hey everyone, if you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Everyone, welcome to uh, Controversies in Church History, uh, our monthly course we're presenting here at Our Lady of Sorrows. And um, uh, last time, the last first meeting, we discussed, uh, I give a talk on deaconesses in the early church. Somebody trying to get in. Yeah, um, thank you, uh, Virgil. Um, this month, uh, talk is going to cover the Crusades, which is obviously a um, controversial topic in Christian history. And so, um, and so, yeah. And so, the question, I, you know, the title of the uh, lecture is a perversion of Christian faith, because this is one of the things that at least modern versions of Christianity and modern thinkers tend to view it as. So, um, and to begin with a little introduction, um, which. Um, if you, you know, uh, if you haven't seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven, um, yeah, I, I, I like memes. Uh, if you haven't, if you were in my first lecture, there were a lot of these things in here. Um, and I'm starting with this movie if you haven't seen it. It's a movie by Ridley Scott, 2005. And, um, and, and, yeah, and by the way, I don't mean to make light of the conquest of Jerusalem. It's a brutal thing. But... The film, if you haven't seen it, it's a visually beautiful film. Um, it's also, in terms of its historical accuracy, complete garbage. Um, and it's one of the worst films out there, yet it was made a lot of money, it was very popular. Um, and I begin with this because it pretty much, if you've ever seen it, I guess it's kind of worth seeing. Um, I begin with it because it kind of encapsulates every single misconception I think people have about the Crusades. Um, in general, you have in this movie, if you don't know the film, um, the central character is this almost sort of agnostic who's on the Christian side. And of course, every Christian basically in the film besides him is a bloodthirsty uh, fiend whose only goal in life is to kill people without provocation, take their land. Uh, and of course, his, his counterpart in the film, we'll talk about Saladin in this lecture, is the, the good, pious Muslim who is also courteous and gentle and all these other sorts of things. And uh, it's basically all a big uh, fight about nothing. And again, I can't stress, I really do like Ridley Scott, by the way, as a director. We owe him a great debt of gratitude. If you've ever seen, I'm sure you have, seen the film Gladiator, which is also historical rubbish. But, but he almost single-handedly resurrected the historical epic and brought it back into fashion. So we owe him that, even if we have to uh, make fun of him and Orlando Bloom uh, for their efforts. But I, I mention this because I want to start out. This is kind of the image, the caricature, of the Crusades, I want to, if you like, exercise uh, from your minds, because it's the one you probably have in your minds. And I don't mean, by the way, to apologize for any uh, atrocities committed by Crusaders. They did do that on occasion. Uh, but to give us a more balanced presentation of what it was they did and why they did it. Uh, and so a little brief introduction about the controversy itself. Um, is this a modern controversy? For the most part, yes. Uh, up through the I would say 16th centuries, in the 17th century, uh, it was not really a controversy that, okay, were the Crusades unjust wars? Were they wars of colonial expansion? For the most part, um, that wasn't the case. There were, however, criticisms, contemporary criticisms, uh, even dating from the first Crusades, about the legitimacy of what was going on. They were always a minority. Um, they were there. They were never that strong, not as strong as you would think, actually, in certain degrees. Uh, and certainly to get, to get toward the later Middle Ages when you get toward 
the different Crusades, uh, after the first uh, several to the Middle East, you'll have some more criticism. But for the most part, it was seen in a positive light. Now, when does this you know, controversy really begin? When do you get uh, people uh, really sort of um, denigrating the Crusades as being you know, mindless fanaticism, uh, motivated by greed, motivated by uh, 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 desire for land is in the Enlightenment. Enlightenment historians like Voltaire, uh, like Edward Gibbon. Uh, Gibbon is a little more fair in terms of you know, at least uh, giving you a, a, some appreciation of the, what the Crusaders went through. But for the most part, they see it as a, a work of superstition, fanaticism, uh, passe violence. The other, where, other place you get a lot of these caricatures from are from romantic authors of the 19th century in both a positive and a negative sense. You're going to have a romanticized view of the Crusaders as always being, you know, court, courteous and chivalrous and, you know, helping the little ladies across the pond, all that stuff. Uh, you're also going to have a romantic myth that's associated with people like, um, uh, with people like Sir Walter Scott, the great um, um, novelist, who in one of his novels, I can't remember which one, um, depicts, again, kind of what you get in Kingdom of Heaven, the brutal, you know, uh, ignorant, stupid, um, pretty much vicious crusaders versus the noble, more sophisticated, whatever, Muslims. Um, the caricature where it's sort of, you know, pretty simplistic, that comes from the Romantics. Uh, and so that's influenced us in a lot of ways in the modern world. And uh, what's happened, though, in the last 75 to 100 years is that modern academic scholarship has gotten beyond these caricatures. Um, there is a boon in... Uh, Crusade scholarship to this day. I mean, it's it's you can go into the bookstore. There's plenty of good, but plenty of good books actually. Uh, one of the things I'm going to do, by the way, is I'm going to post um, um, on our uh, page uh, my uh, my notes, the outlines, and everything. Also going to post this video. Uh, also going to post the uh, sources I use for this lecture and other stuff I didn't. So I compiled a bunch of stuff, internet stuff, but also books. If you want to go learn about it, there's a lot of stuff out there, and they have for the most part. Um, going away from this idea, uh, this very heavily negative ideal of the Crusades as being, you know, it's about mere plunder, it's about mere material uh, gain and stuff like this, um, and uh, reassessed uh, its place uh, in the Middle Ages and what it, was, what it was about. However, the second thing to note about this is that almost none of this scholarship has permeated popular culture. <laughs> um, Kingdom of Heaven is a dozen years old. Uh, film is a lot more powerful than any book uh, and this is the default uh, understanding of the Crusades. And I say this again, let me stress here, I'm not here to tell you everything the Crusaders did was wonderful. It wasn't. But it does not mean that they were all bloodthirsty fanatics, uh, and it's nothing like that film. And by the way, could you please hold your questions to the end of the talk? I have a lot of stuff to go through. I, I'll, I'll take all your questions, but I want to get where I'm going first. All right? It is very relevant, but we're going to come back to this in a moment. But please save questions uh, to the end. Um, and so that's my little intro. One last thing, and I mentioned this last time, and I'll mention it every time I do this. Um, history is complicated. Always remember that when we come to talk about this. And again, I assume everybody here is Catholic, even if you're not. The faith is something, you know, it's something everybody can understand. Uh, history, it's complicated. <laughs> Uh, and I should also point out, by the way, that I am not an expert in the Crusades. Uh, if you don't know, I forgot to introduce myself. Hi, I'm Derry Taylor. Um, I'm a professor at Johnson County Community College. The Crusades are not my uh, primary area of study. I am not, not an expert, so keep that in mind. Take that with a grain of salt. Uh, I'm offering this course as, you know, using my research skills to learn this 
and offer it to the young adult community and anyone else who wants to learn, obviously. Um, the other thing, not, besides me not being a specialist of the Crusades, is I'm not a theologian. Uh, definitely not a theologian. I have, long story short, I'm a convert of the faith. I have actually very little formal theological training, so keep that all in mind as we go forward. And so I want to frame the rest of my uh, talk in terms of four questions, and we'll give four answers to these questions at the end, something you can take away from this. Uh, the first question may sound odd. What was a crusade? Everybody probably has in their mind, I know what a crusade is. Again, this is academics. Sometimes academics make things more complicated than they have to. They're actually right here. It's actually a little more complicated than you think to identify what a crusade was. We'll come back to this. Uh, the first question. The second question we want to answer is, were crusaders motivated by religion? Because you can kind of guess from what I've said already. Uh, this is one of the major critiques amongst them. And again, the, the basic thinking is, hey, how can you go you know, slaughter people for Christ? That doesn't sound exactly Christian to a lot of people. Uh, it's a real question. One that deserves a serious answer. The third question uh, goes back to the nature of the wars themselves. Were the crusades unjust wars? Because again, uh, in the popular image, you have a lot of people... Um, it's only hinted at in um, Kingdom of Heaven, but the idea is the Crusades were completely unprovoked. They were aggressive war. They were wars that had no real justification, uh, according to traditional standards of Christian you know, uh, morality for that, but also just in modern terms, which is something we'll also talk about as well. Uh, and then finally, uh, and this is the big question for uh, Catholics, and I wanted to bring this to you, is were the Crusades a perversion of the gospel message? And so I'm going to come back each one of these at the end will give a, a provisional answer to these things and something you can take away uh, as you're going forward. Okay. Uh, yes, so first question. What was a crusade? And uh, this is something that, again, as I mentioned earlier, may sound uh, easy, but there are problems with defining this. Not the least of which is the word crusade was never used by crusaders in the Middle Ages. It is a modern term. Uh, is, uh, in French, I think it enters the language in the 16th century. Uh, it doesn't enter in English language in a broad way till the 17th century, to the 1600s. So you were talking about a, uh, um, a later sort of clarification of things that weren't always clear on the ground. There was never a time when anybody sat down, no theologian said, this is what a crusade is, this is, uh, Thomas Aquinas ever did this. So it's one of those things that was a practical matter, um, maybe with a few exceptions. Uh, in history. Uh, and there are several different schools of thought on this. And again, you're wondering, okay, isn't this about the Middle East? Isn't this about taking land from the Muslims? Isn't this about taking Jerusalem back? And in some ways it is. This is, by the way, I won't go through all of them. One of the schools of thought on this is called the traditionalist interpretation, which identifies there's only really a few crusades, and they're all about the Holy Land. Uh, they number them usually the first, the fourth, second, third, fourth. There's like five or six of them, or however they number. Uh, even that's kind of arbitrary and not really accurate. Uh, but it has to do with retaking Jerusalem and uh, the holy sites there and nothing else. Um, one other uh, sort of uh, view of this is that, um, it's sometimes called the generalist interpretation, is that crusade is just a term for a holy war, right? A generic term for like, it'd be like jihad in Islam. Crusade is just a holy war in generic. Anything that can be, any sort of cause that can be linked to fighting for God, basically. Um, the third one, I mentioned this third one because this is the one more or less I'm going on. Um, this is what's called the pluralist interpretation. 
and the pluralists basically view um, crusading in much wider terms than just going to take the Middle East, although that's still one of the most important things to crusaders in the, in the Middle Ages. Um, and in particular, because it identifies certain aspects that the uh, historians think are constant across a lot of these different um, wars we're talking about here. And in particular, I'm, I'm going on the definition of Jonathan Riley Smith, uh, who was a, a late historian of the Crusades, and I'll quote him here. Uh, quote, uh, what makes a crusade different? What type of, it is a holy war, but what type of, what kind of uh, type of uh, it, it is? Uh, and he says, quote, crusades were penitential war pilgrimages. Holy, because waged on God's behalf, and penitential because those taking part consider themselves to be performing an act of penance, unquote. And let me explain that for a moment. What's going to happen, uh, we'll talk about the, the chronology and everything, but it's really crucial. The thing that makes um, the Crusades uh, a, religious, a, a religious event for contemporary, for people who took the cross, took the time, trouble, and effort to go to the Holy Land, to go to Spain, to go oh, lots of other places to fight uh, um, um, you know, non-Christians basically, and defend the faith as they understood it, was that uh, in the 11th century, popes and the other theologians in charge of the church uh, came up with a fairly novel idea that uh, if you're fighting in a war for defense of the faith, for a defense of, um, a defense of um, the church, defense of Christians, that could be counted as an act of penance, like going on a pilgrimage, like doing you know, charitable works. And in fact, one of the things he mentions there was a war pilgrimage. The whole idea of pilgrimage is very important, especially to the first uh, Crusades, uh, because in some ways, you're gonna, as you're gonna see, the goal is Jerusalem in the first Crusade, and pilgrimage to Jerusalem was the sort of major destination for Christians in the Middle Ages. And they almost thought of this, the first Crusades, they talked about it, a lot of preachers did, as if it were, and this is kind of contradictory, an armed pilgrimage. You weren't supposed to go on pilgrimage armed. Uh, but this is the way they began to conceive of it uh, when it first breaks out. And so you have a specific holy war which is supposed to be penitential. That's one of the uh, main things you take away from this, with, of course, the Crusades of the East being the primary, the most important ones. But as we're going to see, there are a much, much wider berth for what we're talking about in terms of going next, uh, for what they're doing. The second thing I want to note about Crusades is they are not, and you have to think of this, it's hard actually for us to think in these terms, Crusades are not wars waged by nation-states. It's not, um, one exception, we'll get to it, uh, they are waged by individual knights drawn from the entire western, uh, to some extent, eastern world. Why is that important? Um, they're voluntary. Nobody is forcing people to go take up the cross, as the term uh, becomes. Um, they're voluntary knights. They go, a lot of times their goal is to go liberate, say, Jerusalem, go there, worship, and then go back home. And that's it. That is mostly what crusaders do. Most of them not, do not go to the Holy Land, carve up some territory, get a feudal estate. No, they... they, they liberate whatever city, they fight, defend the, the whatever crusader states, they worship at the shrines, they go home. That is mostly what crusading is about. And it is complete, when I say voluntary, not just the vows that people make. Um, the, as we're going to see uh, going and talk about the crusader states, these states are not really self-sufficient. They have to be funded from Europe by subsidies from the papacy, from uh, religious orders in Europe. Um, my point is they don't exploit the population enough to actually live on their own. That's not their goal. Their whole goal is to have control of those holy sites, unencumbered from Muslim rule. Uh, and so that's one thing to keep in mind. It's a very odd, in some ways amazing undertaking, but it's not what you think in modern terms that way.
And so uh, next thing to talk about is the chronology of this. And this is kind of complicated because it depends on how you define some of these wars. The First Crusade takes place in 1096. We'll come to that. I'm dating, and I had the question mark up there because this is my, my, my view of this. The last crusade would be the Siege of Vienna in 1683. Um, we'll get to the Ottomans in a second, but the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish uh, Muslim Empire from uh, Central Asia, makes its way several times into, uh, into Austria, very, comes very close to conquering it twice. Uh, that's really the last one in those terms, if you think about it as a defensive war against Christendom. There is, by the way, you could, if you wanted to, actually stretch this to the 19th century. That's how long-lived this idea is, and hopefully it'll make sense when I uh, say what that is going forward. Um, and so a long, long, longer history than you think. And then finally, the geography of this. Again, in our imagination, it's Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which is... You know, that actually makes a lot of sense in medieval terms because in Middle Ages, of course, you see medieval maps, Jerusalem's the center of the universe, and people took that very deadly seriously. But there, in fact, there were crusades, and I mean crusades where the Pope, we'll get this, talk about this in a second, um, gave people uh, the idea, by the way, about penance was you got remission of sins for doing this. So he granted people remission of sins, not just for crusades to the Holy Land, but crusades to Spain, to retake uh, Spain from the Muslim armies there, Crusades in Western France, Crusades uh, in Northern Africa, in Morocco and Egypt, Crusades in Northern Europe, in the Baltic Sea, against Finland, Estonia, Lithuania, Prussia, in the Balkans, Greece, uh, uh, the Middle East, to Constantinople to try to save Constantinople in the 15th century, and even naval battles. This takes place, this is really a this is a Christendom-wide uh, uh, set of uh, events, basically. Much bigger in scope. Um, much more ambitious than uh, you'd probably think at first. And I'll come back to that, but I'm going with that just to give you an idea of how broad this is. Okay, so that's the first question. It is a penitential war pilgrimage uh, fought against, uh, and hey, by the way, I should uh, put, uh, add this caveat, wherever it can be justified, and by the way, it's not always justified, but wherever it can be justified that it's a defensive war, a reactive war against uh, attacks on the faith. Uh, and we'll come back to how accurate that was at a moment toward the end, but I want to move forward. So the second question, were crusaders motivated by religion? So, first thing to note is that um, it's true that virtually everybody is motivated by mixed motives, even the most deeply religious people. And I'm thinking, we'll come to the First Crusade again, um, the Pope who called for the First Crusade, Urban II. Um, he assuredly, as I'm going to explain, had religious motives for what he was doing. It was not merely, and we'll come to the, the debate about this, but it was not merely he wanted to go conquer the East or you know, kill, slay the infidels. It wasn't quite that. He did want, he did have, by the way, the idea that if you got some of these very, very violent Western knights out of Europe, it might be a good thing. Yeah, and channel some of their energies into what might be a more worthy cause. Sure. Uh, he had political, by the way, uh, ideas behind his crusade. I'll get to them. They're actually not, they're actually fairly noble political ones, but they're there as well. Um, so keep that in mind. Mixed motives are a part of human nature, and there's no reason to expect even saints um, to have always perfect motives. Actually, I'll have an example of this, by the way, a saint who was calling for a crusade who um, kind of went off the rails a little bit in calling for them. So mixed motives is one thing. 
But the next thing I have to talk about are older theories of motivation. When we talk about caricatures of the uh, motivations of these crusaders, uh, a lot of this goes back to, I mentioned the Enlightenment and, and things like this, but it gets into scholarship. And for a long time, you did have, uh, it was a prevailing theory of uh, motivation by greed, just you know, pl- a lust for plunder with religion as a cloak. Uh, you also had more uh, sophisticated theories um, in particular, and I mentioned one already, this is the social outlet theory, I call it, this, this, the idea that you're getting these you know, violent knights out of Europe and giving them something to do so they don't terrorize your own population. Um, more prominent than this is a, a theory that um, was, has been thoroughly debunked, but sometimes called the younger son theory. This is the idea that uh, in medieval Europe, if you don't know, inheritance laws were such that, um, if you know what primogeniture is, when you died and you left your property, you had to leave it to your eldest son. Again, the whole idea was to keep your estate together, which meant your younger sons got nothing. So the idea was, well, these crusaders must have just been these younger sons of, of nobility. They sent them off to, to, to the least, carve up some land, get their estates. Uh, almost totally false. Most of the people at, who actually went were, uh, in fact, the eldest sons. They were in fact, risking a lot because it took, they, you know, they had to go and hawk a lot of them to actually get the money to raise for, you know, armor, horses, provisions, people to, uh, you know, whatever, all the entourage that goes with it was ignore, enormously expensive. Uh, total bunk, basically, that theory. The last one, of course, is religious fanaticism. Um, and again, there's evidence, by the way, there, there were fanatics among the Crusaders. Surprise, surprise. Um, I wouldn't want to rule on out, but it doesn't explain. Um, it doesn't explain the whole movement because, and this is the thing, it wasn't just people who were obviously kind of half cocked. Perfectly normal people were enthused about this. Barely noble people who were enthused about this. And so, okay, what are the what is the evidence for this, and why can we be sure about this? Um, one I've kind of hinted at already, the expense and, and the danger of a crusade. You might, first of all, have to raise all this money. You might leave your estates behind, by the way. We're, you're gone for several years, and we have records of people leaving their estates behind with their wives in charge, and while they're gone, somebody who doesn't like them very much or wants their land initiates a lawsuit in court and wants to take his estates and stuff like this. People lost sometimes uh, a lot in these, uh, uh, in these ventures. Um, and of course, uh, danger. Uh, a lot of them died and didn't come back. Uh, it, it is hard to explain why so many people, and again, it's a small portion of Europe as a whole, but so many over so many centuries did this just for material gain. There were easier ways to make money, even in the Middle Ages. A very few prospered. Uh, a few did. And we'll, you know, come to the Crusader states. Some of them had, you know, became kings of Jerusalem, Counts of Tripoli, Counts of Edessa. Uh, for the most part, that was not the, t- the case with most of them. And most of them, again, this was like an armed pilgrimage. They were related to the holy sites, worship, go back home. You know, in fact, the only thing, basically, that we, another reason, you know, evidence, uh, we know this wasn't about money or material gain. The only thing that Crusaders brought back when they came back from the Middle East in large quantities were relics. And of course, relics are, relics are for veneration, and the church would not allow you to sell them, so you could not make money off of it. So there's just not a lot of evidence, and I, I, I say this, I had a chance to ask Jonathan Riley Smith, um, who, the late Jonathan Riley Smith, he died last year, when he came to KU several years ago, he was giving a talk on this, and I, was, I kind of agreed with him, I kind of knew, I was like, okay, is there any evidence for this materialist interpretation? And he's, you know, in Cambridge accent goes, there is no evidence, none whatsoever. It's very, you know, very insistent upon it. Um, 
uh, really, it really is hard to find the bloodthirsty, greedy fanatics for the most part. Yes, you can find some. But on the whole, not really a, a, tr a true, clear picture of, uh, of the Crusaders. One last thing to mention about this, and keep this in mind, is um, what counts as religious motivation? I say this because there are things, there are obviously things, even a lot of you here I know are practicing Catholics, we're still modern. There are things that we count as secular or not religious that our ancestors in the Middle Ages, they're all the same thing. <laughs> the whole world's kind of religious in that sense. Um, modern society has very different definitions of what counts as a good war, a justifiable war. And uh, largely this means you know, humanitarian wars. Um, modern Christians tend to look askance at violence. We're going to talk about this in a second, the role of violence in early Christianity and uh, medieval Christianity. Um, and so sometimes I think there's anachronism involved in looking back and judging them. Well, this is, well, you know, yeah, uh, well, and we'll come to this. I don't mean to excuse things that went on, but it, it's a mistake to judge uh, people in the past by modern standards, uh, or at least as harshly as I think a lot of people do. Uh, if you're trying to be fair, if you just want polemics out of this, yeah, you'll just go do whatever. But uh, if we're trying to be fair, I mean, by, by the way, fair to uh, um, fair to the Islamic armies as well. I'm not just talking about the Christian ones. All pre-modern peoples have a different view of things than we do. Uh, yeah, and so those, uh, and so in terms of motivating by religion, they were clearly, I think, uh, I don't just mean the Pope, the clergy who were preaching this, the Crusaders themselves, and most of them, by the way, are not educated, they're not theologians, but they understood penance pretty well. Uh, they understood they had to make reparations for their sin. They had been convinced, even though most of them were very violent people, that this was sinful. We know this because they, uh, in the, starting in the 11th century, um, they begin, um, uh, donating lots and lots of money uh, to pay for masses for their souls after they die. And the doctrine of purgatory is very important to them. They know they're sinful and might not make it. And so this is why that idea of penance appeals so strongly to them. They're still, uh, I don't want to say, it's wrong to call them semi-pagan. They're just really inured to warfare. And again, I don't mean to make excuses, but you can think of them as being inured to warfare like uh, our society is inured to sex. Everybody does it. Why is it sinful? You get the idea. Um, and so it's hard for them to separate. Yeah, they took their sinful uh, nature seriously. So we come to the uh, third question. Were the Crusades unjust wars? And uh, this question, uh, which, you know, if you, if you didn't see my first lecture, there was a lot more of this, but this is a more serious topic, so I couldn't quite... Yeah, you know it's Monty Python. It's not. It's not the Crusades, but no, there is. There is. This is one of the. This is. I, I shouldn't have done. This is a serious charge. Are these wars unjust? And in particular, I'll come to this. The end of this little section. Are these wars of colonial domination? We need to come back to that one. These are. These are. These are serious questions. That's why I began with Monty Python. Um, so, um, let's talk about the First Crusade. This is the one people kind of know about. So. And I should probably talk a little bit about the relationship of Islam um, um, with Islam prior to the Crusades in the Holy Land. Um, the Muslims have, of course, conquered the Middle East in the 7th century. They'd held it in perpetuity um, ever since. And one thing to note, because uh, this will be part of a justification for uh, the Crusade, um, they had, for the most part, been fine with Christian pilgrims coming to the Holy Land. 
Um, they wanted their money. They weren't about to turn them away. So um, we have records of, of English monks making it to um, the, uh, Jerusalem in the 7th century, uh, totally unmolested. Um, however, what's going to happen in the decades just prior to, three or four decades prior to the... Um, prior to the First Crusade, is that there's going to be kind of a shift in power in the Muslim world. I don't have a map, and it probably wouldn't help you. I don't want to confuse you any more of all the information I'm going to dump on you, but um, the Abbasid Caliphate, centered on Baghdad, had been the more or less in control of the Middle East, Palestine, Palestine area. Um, they were overrun and taken over uh, by a Turkic people called the Seljuks, the Seljuk Turks, who um, they sort of took over uh, Baghdad, put a sort of, you know, and again, this is partly, I should mention this, partly ethnic in nature. It's an Arab, mostly Arab empire. Uh, they overthrow the Arabs, and uh, a Turkish people take over the uh, caliphate in Baghdad, uh, which breaks up the pal area of Palestine into a bunch of little princeling states ruled by Arabs who are fighting with the Seljuks. And by the way, they don't like each other very much for ethnic reasons. Uh, and so that amounts to sort of, uh, sort of like quasi-civil war in the 1060s, 1070s. Uh, and we do have uh, evidence that, by the way, Christians were got caught up in this and got targeted, especially pilgrims, and killed. Again, how bad was this? We'll get to this in a moment. There, the uh, Pope in 1095 you know, tells lurid stories of massacres, according to some accounts. We're not really sure. It does seem that uh, pilgrims have been attacked. Again, not immediately. This is probably ends in the 1080s, at least a decade before the Crusades called, but it's in, in recent memory. And so there have been some tensions in the Middle East that were uh, building up to this. But more than that, the Seljuk Turks um, begin eating into the Byzantine Empire. If you know what the Byzantine Empire is, this is the East Roman Empire, the empire centered on Constantinople, uh, which, when the Western Empire fell, it went on. Uh, and it, in fact, is the center, really, of the Christian world at this point. Uh, Constantinople is the most wealthy, most brilliant uh, city in the Christian world. And by 1095, the Seljuks have gotten fairly close to Constantinople. So the Byzantine emperor uh, sends a message, sends an embassy to the pope, Urban II, asking him to send some Western knights to aid them in their wars against the Seljuk Turks. Now, what happens is um, Urban II, who, um, who, by the way, was really deeply concerned with, uh, had probably a more deep concern with what was happening in the East than anybody in Chris Western Christendom, and probably anybody in Western Christendom for several generations, um, if you don't know, there had been a schism uh, that opened up between the Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians and the Latin Christians in 1054. He wanted to heal this breach, and he was genuinely concerned about uh, what was going on. He also, however, had a couple of other things in mind. One of the things was that he wanted to, first of all, liberate what he thought was the Eastern churches from Muslim rule. He also wanted to liberate Jerusalem, especially in the holy sites, from their rule. I mention this, by the way, because the Byzantines were on board with the first. They didn't ask for the second. <laughs> and that what they didn't ask for, by the way, was what he came up with. He went on preaching tours, first at Clermont in France, where he announced this crusade, where he offered, again, a remission of sin if people took up the cross, took up their, um, their swords or whatever, and went to the Holy Land and removed the threat from uh, pilgrims and from Christians in the Holy Land. Uh, and he put this, and again, we have several different versions of his speech at Claremont. Some are more lurid than the others. Some are more strained. It's hard to know which one's right. But apparently he tapped into something because the response was electric. All across Europe, from England to France to Spain to uh, the German states, um, people volunteered to go and try to retake the Holy Land. 
partly because, and I have to mention this, I'll, I'll repeat myself, but uh, Jerusalem had a, a powerful effect on people's imaginations. They desperately wanted to go there. Uh, again, the pilgrimage was the most popular in Europe. I guess maybe that or Compostela. Um, and this was pitched in terms of it was almost going to be like a sort of armed pilgrimage in a way. You can go liberate Jerusalem, worship there, remit your sins. You know, this is powerful for them. Uh, and so they do. And in fact, I don't have time to go into this in too much detail. They finally uh, set off uh, in 1096 or 1097. Actually, several different armies at several different intervals set off. Uh, the first army gets dispersed and slaughtered uh, on the way down there. And by the way, they make their way, explain why this is important. They make their way through the le through uh, by land, not by, by sea. Uh, I say this because it's very dangerous, and it's really amazing they actually made it through without getting killed. Partly because Alexios I uh, helped them out. He, uh, he did sort of uh, direct them toward the Holy Land and then split, because that was not why he asked them to come. And by the way, he was not asking for armies of ten to 20,000 people, which is what he got. Uh, which, first of all, they, they couldn't really provision uh, several armies that big. And secondly, it kind of disturbed them, um, because, again, some of those crusaders were looking at Constantinople going, hmm, pretty, can we take it? Uh, there was always a lot of tension from the beginning between the Latin and the Greeks, unfortunately. Uh, they did have a lot of cooperation, but there was tension from the beginning for a lot of reasons. But against virtually all odds, and they should have been wiped out a couple of times, the main body, the main army of experienced knights, uh, made it to the Holy Land in 1098, um, um, uh, eventually took Edessa. Uh, the Siege of Antioch is, in fact, the turning point in the war. I can't go through it. It's a riveting account if you go look at it. Uh, Tripoli, and then finally, and uh, this is the big, and I'll come back to this, um, the big sort of uh, denouement of this um, and that should be Jerusalem, not Jerusalem. Um, <laughs> uh, they sack the city of Jerusalem in 1099 and take the city. Uh, and you've probably heard accounts of this. The accounts are really lurid, and we'll come back to this, but slaughter the male inhabitants, sell everybody else into slavery, that sort of thing. We will come back to this. Uh, and so you have this call to go take, and again, it was in response to you know, uh, a call for aid. So that could be seen in, of course, a defensive light. That's the, and that's the main body. We'll come, we're going to move to the uh, Crusader states here in a second. Because, of course, okay, you have this initial wave. And by the way, they, at its height, the Crusader states encompassed a 600-mile-long stretch of land. And there were something like, at its height, 150,000 uh, Latin settlers in the kingdoms of um, the Crusader states. Again, tiny, not very big, uh, surrounded by Muslim powers who could throw much larger armies at them. And so one of the things that uh, needs to be pointed out, I mentioned this earlier, is the tenuous financial situation of these states. Um, there were kind of quasi-feudal kingdoms, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, uh, the Counts of Edessa and Tripoli. Edessa gets done within, within 30 or 40 years, it's gone. But you do have sort of quasi-feudal estates in which there will be, by the way, Muslim Jewish people along with, um, along with Eastern Christians, who I should mention, by the way, especially the Armenians, they actually helped the Crusaders in their initial, uh, during the First Crusade to help uh, pull some of this off. Um, they're primarily, I, I mentioned before, interested in defending those religious sites. And in fact, they don't really make a lot of money out of the uh, territories that they control. I mean, in terms of, in feudal terms. These are sort of quasi-feudal societies. Uh, the one place they do, the one way they do make money out of this um, uh, are um, 
uh, tax collection, customs from the port cities they've uh, taken, Acre uh, more than any others, but uh, it's one of the more prosperous ports in the Mediterranean. Uh, but they still, again, require not only subsidies from Europe, eventually to defend themselves, because this is the other thing, um, the rest of the Crusades are basically in defense of these territories, so they are defensive wars. They have to have other Crusades to come help them out. They do not have enough people. They're never able to attract settlers from the West. That's, that was never their rationale. They didn't want to go there to settle. They wanted to go there to free the holy sites, go back. Um, one thing I should also mention, by the way, is there was a, a high degree of, for the most part, of religious toleration in these crusader states. That does not mean legal equality. They were not. In fact, basically everybody, Eastern Christians included, were legally inferior to Latin Western Christians. On the whole, however, there was pretty peaceful relationships between the crusaders, local Muslims, Jews. And by the way, I don't think that's necessarily because these crusaders were sweethearts. It wasn't. It's because they were a tiny minority and couldn't afford to, could not afford to like offend any of everybody. But they were not vicious. They were not intolerant in that way, for the most part. Um, again, exceptions here and there I don't know about, but I'm sure they exist. Uh, and as I mentioned before, reliant on men from Europe, increasingly, by the, uh, definitely by the end of the 12th century, uh, with the first and second, uh, third, second and third crusades, they're increasingly reliantly in, uh, in military terms on the military orders, which I'll get to in a moment if I have time. Uh, this is taking a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, to actually run their armies, uh, they were very, very crucial. The Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitallers, uh, in this, uh, in this, uh, uh, in this uh, period. Uh, and these states, and I'm going to skim over the Second and Third Crusades, they lose, basically, they fight to a draw in 1189 uh, against Saladin. But um, the Crusader states last for almost 200 years, and it's quite amazing they lasted that long. There was never any real chance they were going to hold these territories. I take that back. If they had been willing to work with <laughs> the Byzantine emperors and maybe hand over those territories to them, they might have had a powerful enough state to keep them the Western, it was a matter of time. The Muslim surrounding armies were, and this is one of the reasons, by the way, why the, the First Crusade was so successful. They were in disarray, as I kind of indicated. Once they found a leader, uh, they found two of them, actually, a man named Nur ad-Din, who led the uh, defeat of the Second Crusade, and then Saladin, uh, who uh, we took Jerusalem in 1187, his successor. They finally began to push them back. Um, and another 100 years, of course, the last city-state, Acre, falls in 1291, and they are pushed out. It was more or less inevitable, basically, from the beginning. Now, I want to compare that with what goes on in Spain, because I mentioned before, okay, that's the traditional, that's the you know, backbone of crusading. You also had the Reconquista in, southern, in Spain. Now, and this is complicated because Islamic armies conquered Spain in the early 8th century. And almost from the beginning, they never actually did conquer the entire peninsula. So there were northern kingdoms up in the mountains where they couldn't reach, didn't want to reach, who kind of resisted. And you could kind of see the Reconquista starting right then. Depends on what, this is still a matter of debate among Spanish and medieval historians. But by the ninth century, clearly, there's already uh, the kingdom of Asturias in northern Spain. They're already thinking in terms of, okay, our wars are wars of reconquest. Uh, even though they look like border wars where there's a raiding back and forth, they're still talking about it like that. Um, and what happens, they don't have a lot of success until the 11th century. Why? Because the Umayyad dynasty in southern Spain, the main body, uh, the main uh, caliphate there, uh, collapses in 1031. And in the next 50 years, they begin to push farther and farther into southern Spain, till in 1085, they retake the city of Toledo. 
and Toledo, if you don't know, was the old uh, capital of Spain in the Visigothic period prior to the Islamic conquest. And from that point on, it's pretty much, it's, it's a done deal, actually. They're going to start moving south, and they do. But what happens after 1085 is the crusader ideology associated with the papacy, with the crusades of the east, enters into Spain. The popes begin issuing papal bulls, granting the same sort of indulgences, remissions of sin, to uh, people in, um, in Spain. Uh, and it will take on more and more of that character, which it's basically completed by 1248. They take Cordoba, that's the last major kingdom, uh, I, don't, I don't know the rationale. They let, they let Granada, which is in southern Spain, a tiny state, exist for another couple hundred years. And it falls in 1492. The one thing to note about this is, very different almost from the beginning, though, once that ideology comes in there, is this is much more a national crusade. It's run by the kings of Spain. It's financed by, actually, it's financed by the church in Spain, but it is almost wholly self-contained. You do have, you know, knights, templars, orders having, you know, um, uh, military order setting up there. You will have people coming from outside of Spain, but for the most part, this is takes on a. It's sort of like a war of national liberation. They use that term, liberation, from 11th century onward. So again, uh, you know, modern context. If you wanted to see it this way, this is a war of colonial liberation. It's an independence movement. Uh, that's not the way it's been seen in the past, but uh, more historians are more open to that these days. So again, a slightly different, uh, slightly different. Uh, um, um, set of events than you have in the Middle East. But there are a couple of other types of crusades, era, arenas of crusade. I want to mention this one in particular, uh, particularly the Northern Crusades. Um, we're talking about mostly against Baltic peoples who are pagans starting in the 12th century. Uh, the first uh, crusade against uh, in the North is 1147, the same year as the Second Crusade. Uh, which is preached by Bernard, both are which are preached up by Bernard of Clairvaux, Saint Bernard, and um, I should stress not all the wars and there are many many wars that occur in this region in Prussia, in Poland, in Lithuania, these places. Not all of them. The first one was, and there were several others against Estonia. Those places you know, they had the same sort of you know you take the cross, you get the indulgence, you make the vows. Uh, not all these were, and uh, sometimes you have. You have kings, I mean Christian kings in the north, treating this as sort of like, you know, God's war is for us to go take the territory of these pagans. Uh, my point is that it's a lot more ambivalent, the actual rationale for these. Now, by the way, from the beginning, they did have, one of the justifications was defense of missionary settlements. And it's true, in earlier centuries there had been, you know, priests martyred by pagans, and they were, they were expansionist as well. Uh, the kingdom of Lithuania, for example, was a big expansionist kingdom, pagan one, before it converted to Christianity. That having been said, uh, in the north, some of these wars were justified explicitly with the idea of forcible conversion. Uh, some of them also were, um, um, going with this? some of them also tended to sort of blur that line between, okay, we want to defend uh, these settlements, and oh, let's go, let's go like, do things like burn down pagan shrines. It was pretty violent. And again, this goes back to, by the way, if you know the, the, the story of St. Boniface, the you know, missionary to Germany, where he, he goes, they have this sacred tree, Woden, the sacred tree of Woden. He just goes in there with an axe and whacks it down. Violence against, um, you know, pagan shrines is, it's kind of normal for these people. For them, you have to remember, these, these pagan shrines aren't inert things. They are, they are sort of like the instruments of, of demons. They're, they're, they're actively doing evil. You have to attack them. You have to fight them. And yes, that does transfer, unfortunately, over to people as well uh, sometimes. Um, 
One thing also that deserves mention is the role of the Teutonic Knights. And um, I'm going there too much detail here. I have so much more to get out, get through. Um, the Teutonic Knights were actually formed in Acre in the Middle East uh, in the 13th century before the fall of that kingdom. Once it falls, they have, and by the way, all these orders have multiple holdings across Europe. They shift their base back to Europe, and especially to Prussia, where again, there's pagans there, they're fighting a crusade. And it turns into what sometimes historians call a perpetual crusade. And what I mean by that is, uh, popes try to control this, right? They're the only ones who have the authority to issue these indulgences and stuff like this. They granted uh, the Teutonic Knights, for various reasons, um, a dispensation to issue their own indulgences for remissions of sin. They could basically do this to attract followers. I mention this because if this sounds like an abuse, it kind of probably was. Um, th that caricature you got from the Kingdom of Heaven probably comes closer to uh, the Prussian-ruled theocratic state, and it is a theocratic state, of the Teutonic Knights than anywhere else. In fact, the whole, the whole conversion of the Baltic region, actually, if you're going to think in terms of all oh, this you know, colonial imposition of this foreign power, which is imposing a religion on someone, it really fits this much better than uh, the Middle East. Um, of course, the, most of the Baltic was pagan. Some of them were forcibly converted. Uh, and it's totally transformed. It is, part, it is a full, fully integrated part of you know, Latin Western Christendom by the 1500s. It's part of the Western European market system. Changes its region beyond all, not beyond all recognition, but it's really transformed in a way that is not really the same way uh, in the Holy Land, and not the same way, I would say, in Spain. Which brings me to the one last arena I have to mention, because going back to this idea of being defensive, these crusades, the ones against the Ottomans, are all entirely defensive. Because the Ottoman, if you know this, comes from as a um, Turkish peoples uh, that sort of replaced the Seljuks in the 14th century, um, associated with a, a man, Osman, the House of Osman, which managed to make themselves the dominant power in Anatolia, and will become the dominant power in the Muslim world by eating up and conquering what's left of the uh, Byzantine Empire in the 14th and 15th centuries. And so you have several crusades, um, uh, in the, uh, actually starting in the four early 14th century, naval battles with the, with the, uh, with the Ottomans. You have several crusades uh, sent to stop them. Uh, they all fail, unfortunately. You have crusade. One actually does successfully divert them from Constantinople. I mean, Western troops going there doing this. Um, and Byzantine emperors go several times to Europe looking for help, uh, and they try several times. Um, if you know, by the way, you know what the Council of Florence was, Council of Florence Ferrara. It was the last uh, attempt to reunify the Eastern and Western churches. They actually did actually agree on a, a statement of faith. They were supposed to all be reunified, uh, and, in, uh, and, uh, and after that, the Pope called for a crusade, sent a bunch of armies uh, to Varna, and got uh, on, this in, uh, in Bulgaria. And uh, the Turks annihilated them in 1444. Long story short, they could not stop the inevitable at that point, which was the, the conquest of Constantinople and Byzantium by the Ottomans. And uh, the Ottomans became the great threat to Europe for the next 100, 150 years. Um, in the 1480s, they landed in southern Italy, uh, took Otranto and one other, one other major city. They were only stopped basically by the death of uh, the Sultan, Mehmet II. Uh, later on in the 1520s, under Suleiman the Magnificent, they take Belgrade. Uh, they seize the island of Rhodes from the Knights of, uh, the Knights of Malta later on. Uh, 1526, they defeat the Hungarians and take over that country and uh, Mohawks in 1526. 
Uh, and then three years later, they make it to the gates of Vienna and very nearly if, uh, overrun it. If they had, it might have opened up the entire continent to them. Uh, thereafter, it begins to slow down, but you still have this, and it, by the way, the crusading ideal is beginning to decay by the 16th century. I won't go into the changes, you can ask them about them later, but there's of course the major battle, naval battle, at least major in Christian terms at Lepanto in 1571, uh, a combined Christian force defeated an Ottoman force in 1571, which for the most part the Ottomans didn't care about, they still more or less controlled the Mediterranean, but it was a big, huge morale booster for Western Europe at that point. Um, and then finally, I'm skipping over some things. The last major attempt um, by the Ottomans to uh, march into Europe is the Siege of Vienna in 1683, which besides the fact that they fail as a turning point because it, it begins the long decline of the Ottomans. Um, the Ottomans before this, it's kind of amazing to think of it, they never negotiated uh, with anyone. They just dictated terms and you went and did it. Uh, after the Battle of Vienna, they actually Siege of Vienna was lifted. They actually had to send ambassadors to these Western powers who are now, and it took a long time actually, it wasn't like the West was in a position to dominate the rest of the world like they would. Um, it began the slow, slow receding of their power into, um, uh, into, uh, into history. So you have a series of different types of battles, most of whom I think can be uh, described in, in defensive terms. But you have that one last charge I had to mention here, which is the charge of colonialism. And I think a lot of this, and I didn't get this myself, it's my sense of reading the literature, uh, some of this has to do, this myth actually comes, this charge of colonialism, it doesn't come originally from Muslims at all. Uh, it comes from Western, <laughs> Western writers, basically. Uh, I, I start with Saladin because uh, Saladin gets this really good reputation uh, as being this very, you know, you know he's sh chivalrous, right? He's the figure of chivalry. He gets into Dante. Uh, he's uh, among the uh, the righteous Gentiles in limbo, right? Uh, the reason being, by the way, was when he um, conquered Jerusalem, he gave free passage to people to get out of there and allow them to worship there. Um, the thing is, we know from Arab sources, he almost never did this in other settings. To give you an example of what he did do, and by the way, I mentioned this as a counterbalance to overly indulgent depictions of crusaders as being bloodthirsty, and they did do bloodthirsty things, but... Um, the battle which broke the kingdom of Jerusalem in 1187 was called the Battle of Hattin, where he cornered um, the crusader king, uh, the king of Jerusalem, and his army and a bunch of about 300 uh, knights Templar. He forced them to surrender, promised them safe passage, and then according to an Arab source, by the way, uh, brought them before him and then had a crowd of people around him and uh, get, uh, offered them all silver and gold coins if they would go take a sword and behead all of the crusaders and the king of Jerusalem. And I mean, people who are not, if you don't know about beheadings, you have to be kind of trained to do it, otherwise it gets messy. And it got messy. And they executed every last one of them, and apparently to Saladin's delight. And I say this, by the way, not to, by the way, Saladin was uh, uh, an amazing figure in some ways. He did that, by the way, to try to terrorize the, the crusaders and get them out of uh, the Holy Land. Didn't work. That's probably why he didn't do it a second time when he retook Jerusalem, because he didn't want Richard, uh, the, uh, Richard uh, the First of England coming back, whom, by the way, the Muslims were terrified of, uh, who also committed, by the way, uh, he executed a bunch of Muslim prisoner, prisoners as a sort of, again, this is violent warfare. They're trying to one-up each other. Um, but this myth, by the way, started by Latin writers at the time. They admired him. They thought he was a great chivalrous figure. Odd, very odd, um, but it's the where that comes from was originally medieval writers. In the late 19th century, when um, the Ottoman Empire is beginning to sort of falter, 
uh, they picked up on this language. And in fact, uh, in 1896, uh, the, the uh, I can't remember the Sultan's name, the, the uh, caliph, uh, caliph of the Ottoman Empire, issues a history of, or has uh, written a history of the Crusades, which is the first history of the Crusades ever written by an Arabic or a Muslim writer. There were no histories of the Crusades in the Middle Ages. They didn't care. They won. They pushed the Franks back into the sea. And there are, by the way, histories that mention it in the Middle Ages, but as part of you know, the larger history of the Muslim world, which you know, was bigger, more powerful, they saw the Crusaders as a temporary threat. Uh, but the idea gets into these uh, Muslim propagandists that, um, that the colonials, the empires, were the new crusaders, and that there had been this continuous crusade since the 11th century, which, again, as you kind of see, is it's complete nonsense. I mentioned Saladin. They also took him up. He had been totally forgotten. Uh, if you're wondering one of the reasons why they, 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 um, they loved this guy so much, Kaiser Wilhelm II, you know, the Emperor of Germany, goes to the Middle East and goes, makes a point of visiting, makes a pilgrimage to Saladin's tomb and lays a wreath upon it and gives this wonderful speech lauding him because he's a military, I guess he is a militaristic, uh, jingoist like himself. Uh, and they pick this up, this language of, oh, they're crusaders and everything. And they begin turning it against, of course, the Western powers. What happens, of course, in the 19th and 20th centuries, you have a resurgence of what's sometimes called Salafist Islam, very strict interpretation of the Quran and the early sources of, um, of Islamic thinking, uh, which gets uh, into the hands of people like Saeed Qutub, if you know who that is, the founder, one of the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, and they begin talking about Western colonialism as a crusade. In fact, not just colonialism, but any sort of threat by the West to Islam is a crusade, so to speak. And in fact, to this day, you have this language that was used by Al-Qaeda, of course. Uh, uh, what's, the, what's the guy's name? Uh, Osama bin Laden talked about the Crusaders. ISIS uses this uh, as part of its recruiting tool in the Middle East. Um, I have articles written on this by a professor up at uh, uh, St. Francis University in, uh, in Indiana. It talks about this. Like, they're actually actively using this propaganda to promote, uh, promote uh, to recruit for themselves. So basically, this is a completely uh, made-up thing, essentially, based on not on Muslim misunderstandings, but on Western misunderstandings of their own history, which is a really, really weird thing. And so finally, I'll try to do this as quickly as possible. I know I promised an hour. We did have some time, trouble getting started. So, did the Crusades pervert the gospel? Okay. And because you know we had this piety, you maybe. <laughs> You know, maybe it's, maybe it's all, but no, I had to. It serves no purpose, but it's fun. Um, first thing, violence and war in early Christianity. Christ says, um, when, he, uh, when um, um, the soldiers come to arrest him and Peter, you know, gets out his sword, um, those who live by the sword perish by the sword. Um, but that kind of means his followers were carrying swords. Um, he never mentions, he never says anything negative about soldiers. The centurion, of course, is an emblem of faith in the New Testament. On the other hand, of course, he, you know, he suffers at the hand of a very militaristic state. But my point is, it's very ambivalent in the New Testament. Um, it doesn't come out and say, all violence is bad, all war is bad, all, um, you know, um, you know, turn the other cheek doesn't mean, okay, let yourself be killed in every single instance. You can't get that out of it. 
uh, and the early church, there were some contradictory attitudes. There was on the one hand, uh, I, think, I think a local church council actually condemned pacifism at one point, which again, there may be something to do with martyrdom where you can't you know, commit suicide. You have to actually, <laughs> you can't just go, hey, kill me. No, you can't do that. So perhaps it was due to this. But you also, of course, have a persistent suspicious, a suspicion of military life in the early church. For obvious reasons, the, from the first 300 years, the pagan army that's kind of suppressing them. Um, but after you get into the earlier, uh, earlier centuries, you will have, again, once it becomes a Christian empire, uh, different attitudes of necessity. Christians are in charge of things now. They're going to have to deal with the realities of, quite frankly, having power, which means you have to deal with violence and warfare. And in fact, uh, in the Byzantine Empire, for example, it was forbidden for priests to uh, fight in the army. Again, because they were supposed to be the mediators of Christ's sacrifice. They couldn't do that. Monks fought all the time with no qualms. This happened in Western Europe. Um, and, um, and again, you have this sense that uh, it's very ambivalent, even if it's... Uh, and, and this persists, basically. It's really... There's a suspicion there. Uh, and this is why, and this is, it comes to my next point, why it is kind of a, it is a novelty and a change in the 11th century when uh, popes begin embracing this idea of penitential violence. And it has to do partly with what's called the Gregorian reforms of the 11th century. And I, this is a big topic, and I don't want to go through, I'm going to give you guys a few minutes to ask questions and everything. Um, there was a series of um, reforms initiated by popes in the 11th century, popes who were actually monks who came out of monasteries based out of places like Cluny and areas in Western Europe where monastic life had sort of decayed, become corrupt. They refound the monasteries and make them, you know, trying to make them as originally austere as they were. But they also have bigger plans than this. Um, they also have this idea that, because um, it's a problem, you have um, too much lay control of the church too much lay control by kings and emperors and nobility. And their goal is to rest, uh, basically to liberate themselves, is the term they use. Liberate the church from lay control. And in particular, you're going to have drive to, you know, to do things, to try to rearrange um, activities of life that the church had never done before. One of which, by the way, is to try to curb the violence of the nobility in Europe. This is, if you've ever heard this, it originates in France. The uh, so-called truce of God, this is the idea that on pain of you know, excommunication or whatever, um, nobility were supposed to only be able to fight on certain days, hence the truce of God. It was an effort to curb violence. It never really worked all that well, but at least they tried. Um, but it, I, my point about this is that it suggests a means of trying to, how can I put this, uh, again, to come to terms with the violence in a society in which they had to run it, and it was supposed to be Christian. If you like, you can see the whole idea of knighthood as being a, an effort to Christianize these people who were obviously on the borderline in terms of their actual way they lived their lives. Um, and this is where you get sometimes the charge that, well, they, all they want to do is get rid of these you know, violent people from Europe. And yeah, that was uh, Urban, the first, Urban II, I should say, the, the uh, pope who called for the First Crusade, certainly did understand these people. He was an aristocrat himself. He knew how violent they were. Um, but it was also a legitimate means of trying to bring them more, tie them more firmly to, to the penitential system of the church. Trying to bring into the church's life an aspect they'd always been suspicious of, the military. Um, and this is also, by the way, this uh, relationship, because I mentioned these uh, popes, it becomes bigger than just this movement. The next several centuries are, are, are eras of reform. Um, 
It's actually in, in, uh, in connection to this, I want to mention this because it's actually important for later history. It's Innocent III, the uh, Pope who is the uh, instigator of the Fourth Crusade, which was such a disaster, um, who was the first Pope to, again, he, he actually tried to get the clergy to provide, you know, material for Crusaders to go. He was the first uh, Pope to grant indulgences for people who didn't want to go to the Holy Land, so they provided money instead, or provided money for someone else to go. That's where the whole idea of indulgences as sort of getting out of your actual act of penance comes from. Which, when we get to the Reformation eventually in this, that's where that starts, and it was not meant to be, by the way. But it, of course, uh, can be easily abused, which it was, uh, of course, going forward. But it's tied into the, with this drive to assert the church's control over a society which they think of, and they're right, it's very disordered, it's chaotic. They want to bring that to bear on these, um, on these, uh, on this part of society. The other thing to mention uh, about uh, a possible perversion, you people usually bring up the sack of Jerusalem. Uh, mainly because the depictions we have of it, the accounts, are really, really horrific. People wading through blood up to their knees and slaughtering everything in sight. And Two things to remember, remember about this. The first thing is that the rules of siege warfare in the pre-modern, I say pre-modern world, because it's pretty much everywhere. It's not a Christian Muslim. It's not a religious thing. If you, you give, basically, the people you're besieging a chance, okay, you reject our terms, we have a free way to do what we want. That's the sort of, that's explicit, basically. This happens, by the way, between Christian armies, Muslim, Muslim armies, um, and it's, again, it's not good, it's awful, but it doesn't mean that what the Crusaders were doing was necessarily that different than, for example, I mentioned uh, Saladin, um, the uh, Mamluk Sultan of, of Egypt, um, who, uh, it's the 1230s, he takes the city called Arsaf, in which the Knights Templars are governing the city, lay siege to it. Uh, he's one of the ones who begins to turn, kick the uh, Crusaders out of the Holy Land. Uh, he gets them to surrender, promises them safe passage, and then immediately executes the entire lot of them uh, after giving his oath. Again, this happens a lot uh, in siege warfare. Uh, and then, of course, there's just the sort of psychological tension built up by the besiegers. This happens. This may have happened in the case of the Crusaders. They've been in danger for weeks. They may have just gone berserk anyway as a natural reaction. So, um, again, not to excuse it, but to explain it. Oh, and one other thing about the sack of Jerusalem. All the accounts we have are much later. They're all by clergymen. And some people have pointed this out, that there may be an element of exaggeration in their accounts. Why? This sounds bad, but the whole idea is that this war sort of purified the city by getting rid of the Muslims. So they might, they might have, and they're biblical, by the way, Old Testament precedents for this. They may have the idea that it may, makes the victory seem that much more, you know, um, providential. Which, by the way, I'm sure they didn't have to exaggerate that much. I'm pretty sure it was pretty bad. But it's something to keep in mind. Then we come to the military orders, um, who, again, I think this, I think this is actually more of a Protestant objection. Um, the idea being that, okay, monks are there to pray, to do good works, to live a contemplative life mostly. How can you combine that with killing people? That seems to be the primary objection. And as I kind of mentioned before, I've, I've only glossed over this. And I promise I'm, I'm getting you out of here by 8.30. Um, <laughs> hopefully no one here actually cared about the Chiefs game, so that's good. Um, oh, we're really going with this. Oh, yes. Um, 
the uh, military orders, of course, start with the the Knights Hospitallers, who they started out, as the term uh, indicates, basically providing um, care for the sick, the dying pilgrims who came to Jerusalem. They operated a huge hospital. Uh, it had like 600 beds in the 11th century. Uh, pretty amazing size and scope and had a big staff and everything. They were slowly turned into a defensive force uh, as Jerusalem kind of came, you know, under attack. Uh, whereas the Knights Templar were founded by laymen in Europe who swore a vow to go defend pilgrims in the Holy Land. Uh, and they became, uh, they were given um, the temple area, which they thought was the temple. It was actually the... the um, the um, one of the mosques in Jerusalem they converted into a church again, and um, they become, of course, the primary military, and it is a military elite. That's the weird, weird thing about it. It is a monastic order. They have monastic vows. They do the praying. They have chanting. They also train for warfare nonstop. Uh, which and I should mention this: a lot of them die in the Middle East defending these places. Um, it's not as if a lot of them. Again, it's not like they're making, again, the criticisms are things like, well, they're supposed to live austere, simple lives. Their rule, the rule of their order is modeled on the Cistercians, which is a reformed Benedictine order, which is very austere. By the time you get, by the time you get into the 12th century, some, 13th century, some of these Templar masters, they're rich, they have money. Again, they're running, a, they're running an international organization of immense complexity, which, whose whole goal is military action. So, uh, which, by the way, is a commonplace of monastic life in the Middle Ages. You know, orders get reformed, they're really austere. People, because they're, they think they're holy, donate land and money. Uh, over time, they become less holy, and then things decay, and then this starts all over again. That was, uh, and it needed to happen by the time the poor, I said the poor Templars got destroyed by uh, the King of France. Um, but for the most part, I don't really see how that is a perversion in my view. Again, if you, as long as you accept the basic idea that somebody needs to defend those places. Uh, and I'll mention this again, I think the one order that probably did, if you wanted to see them as a little more toward that caricature, were the Teutonic Knights. They, I, go back and read about some of the ways they venerate the Virgin Mary. It is kind of creepy, and I mean, I know some people's devotion to the Virgin Mary can be a little excessive. They almost, they almost talk about her like she's a pagan war goddess at po certain points. They're very much about that. And not all of them. I mean, they never have trouble recruiting. They are necessarily Christians. Um, and one thing that's different about them is they're ruling a theocratic state. They, have, they are literally doing that rather than, you know, the Crusaders, the Templars are in you know, Jerusalem defending it. They're not kings themselves. Um, so you do have that, it's a very least a tension, you know, uh, with the military orders, that and the gospel. Um, but one other uh, matter in terms of uh, a perversion of the gospel, which I, this was the biggest criticism you got in the Middle Ages, was there were crusades uh, against other Christians. Um, the worst example of this is, of course, the Fourth Crusade, which was supposed to go liberate the Holy Land after it had fallen to Jerusalem, uh, but got diverted. Oh, that's a, I got what that noise was. Um, got diverted. Uh, it was a mainly Venetian-led, Venetian-led um, Venetian uh, expedition. Long story short, got diverted to Constantinople, and they wound up sacking and destroying the city and taking over the Byzantine Empire, which, in the long run, by the way, led to its demise. Essentially, uh, I, I don't have time to explain that. Uh, otherwise, other than to say, by the way. 
Innocent III was the one who organized the crusade. He had uh, already excommunicated everybody involved with it before it ever got to Constantinople. Uh, and he was devastated by this because it basically, I mentioned the schism with the Eastern Orthodox Christians. On the ground, it hadn't meant much, uh, the mutual excommunication. After the Fourth Crusade, yeah, they pretty much hated our guts, uh, Western Christians' guts ever since, and for rather good reasons. Um, but it was also used, this idea of crusade, um, against heretics. Uh, there were several major crusades, mostly in Western France, I think one in Italy, where the Pope issued the same sort of, you know, uh, assurances about sin for uh, military force against heretics the Cathars or the Albigensians in western France, um, and uh, the Waldensians, which I think are in the same area and they're different people. I won't go into describing their belief systems, they're kind of weird anyway. But even more than this, they actually would call, the Pope would call for crusades against his political enemies, uh, against people he thought were threatening the papacy, um, most famously Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, both of these, by the way, these uses of the crusade, they did, this is where they got a lot of criticism in the latter part of the Middle Ages, which uh, some of it is justified. Um, I'll say this about the Pope and his political enemies. Popes always did have a concern, um, especially in the earlier Middle Ages, about their safety. Uh, Rome was invaded several times by emperors, kings who didn't like what the Pope was doing. Again, he may have excommunicated them. Uh, he did uh, several times. Um, uh, his personal safety could be endangered. Uh, that having been said, it, it didn't do much for the papacy's uh, reputation. Uh, I'll say that. Then finally, one last element has to, be, has to be mentioned. This is mostly concerned with the First Crusade. Mostly. <clears throat> um, violence against Jewish communities. Uh, during the First Crusade, you had uh, preparation forces, forces that were not meant to go to the Holy Land, gathered together. Um, <clears throat> I believe they start in the Rhine River Valley somewhere. And um, again, the, 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 it's kind of murky what happened, but apparently the, uh, the preaching uh, of uh, the clergy of the Pope, again, the idea to go take up the cross against the infidel, apparently led some of these people, and this turns into a mob, it's not just soldiers, it's a lot of people just coming out for this, um, to apparently identify infidels with Jews, and apparently in their minds they couldn't make a distinction between the two, and, you know, hey, the Pope's been telling you to go take, you know, take back, you know, whatever from these infidel Muslims who are, you know, uh, opposing Christians in the Middle East, hey, we have these Jews who are doing this here in Europe. Uh, so they go along attacking Jewish communities in German cities along, along the Rhine River Valley, Spire, Mintz. Um, some places they uh, slaughter people. Some places they, they forcibly convert them. Uh, some places the Jews are protected by the bishops. They try pretty much in every city, the bishops do, to their credit. Uh, this is not an official policy at all. There wasn't a whole lot, unfortunately, the Pope could do at this point once he'd let all this stuff loose. Um, and in fact, they got so out of hand, they actually made it um, through German territory into Hungary, where uh, Hungarian knights who were assembled uh, at the behest of a, 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 a Hungarian cardinal uh, stop them and wipe them out, actually, uh, from going forward. Uh, and so you did have, um, you did have uh, um, uh, uh, a response to this, which was, again, this kind of goes back to questions of, okay, who's in control of these crusades? Again, a lot of times, popes would call for them. They weren't necessarily in control of them, as you kind of saw with the Fourth Crusade. 
um, the potential for abuse was always there is my point with these with this type of military expedition so okay about an hour but not too much more than an hour four takeaways so we had those four questions right first question what's a crusade and so we can say it's probably a defensive penitential war, uh, penitential war especially for holy sites or holy places right um, Again, there's some fudging there. It's not totally that, but most, and I, and I think, by the way, most of, certainly most of the expeditions to the Middle East, I think they can be justified on those terms. Uh, it's not, um, it's not necessarily, that, um, I mean, not modern terms perhaps, but definitely contemporaries thought that, and some of them were, of course, defenses of Christian states in the Middle Ages. Second question, were they motivated by Christian faith? Yes. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about it. You can now, if you're a modern Christian, if you're a Protestant or whatever, maybe even a Catholic, maybe not a true religious faith, maybe it's not a good version, but it's it, certainly they're motivated by a genuine desire for. Uh, this is the thing. It's related to their salvation. They, they know they're sinful people. This is a way they're trying to sort of uh, make up for what they've done. Third, the charge of colonialism is, uh, is a result of anachronism. Uh, it is simply anachronistic um, to portray, um, to, portray uh, to conflate the 19th century colonialism with the Crusaders. And this is, by the way, again, I can't stress, this isn't a Muslim problem. <laughs> this is a Western, uh, maybe modern secular problem where they're confusing these things. Uh, even though it, got into, it has gotten into the Muslim world, it's not really accurate at all, of course. And then finally, what can we say about a warfare of this sort and the Christian faith? I think you can make the argument that these wars were not intrinsically bad. They were not intrinsically evil. War, I don't think itself, is intrinsically evil. I don't think, I don't think you can get away with saying that. I don't think what's revealed in the Bible and sacred tradition allows us to make a definitive judgment about that. That having been said, um, it's pretty clear that... Well, this is, by the way, for any society... War is always problematic because you may have a just cause. You may have an opponent that needs to be stopped, even with potentially violent, lethal force. The problem is this almost always, always winds up um, causing the death of innocent people. And that's why um, I think I would defend in the main the, uh, the Crusades. Um, but as with most things, I rue its, uh, its extension so far and so wide. Uh, and that's how, if, again, if I was you know, talking to somebody and they asked about the Crusades, these are some of the answers I would give them. So, um, And so, um, that is what we have for you tonight. Uh, uh, before I leave, again, you can stay...